God is good. Happy Mother's Day. Hope you have a special day planned and your kids have one planned for you. If you would turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Colossians in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 1. False teachers and heretics had infiltrated this church at Colossae, diminishing the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And quite frankly, cults, false teachers, and heretics have been doing that ever since. Oh, Jesus was just a man. Oh, he was just a carpenter. He was just a religious philosopher. He's just one person amongst a half a dozen religious figures down through the ages. And yet, his resurrection sets him apart from everyone else who's ever led a religious order. He rose from the dead. That sets him apart from every other world religion that there is. The miracles that he did attested to the fact that he was the Son of God. And none of the other heads of religious orders have ever claimed to be the Son of God. They've never done a miracle. In the Quran, for instance, for Muhammad, there is not one single miracle that is attributed to him. He never claimed to be the Son of God, the Messiah of the world. He never claimed any of those things. He claimed to be a prophet. Jesus was a prophet, but more than a prophet. He was the Son of God, able to save when no one else could. But false teachers had come into this small home fellowship church, nowhere near the size of the congregation that's gathered this morning. You think, why would Satan pick on the small churches? Huh. Why does he try to destroy home fellowships? Why does he try to subvert the pure, simple teaching of God's Word? Rather than addressing all of the points of their heresy, I love what Paul does in writing this church. He says, we're just going to lift up Jesus Christ. Can I tell you, he's the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. He holds every single atom in the universe together, and someday he's going to let go. He is the master of all. He is the creator of all. And all things exists to please him. That is, if you've ever wondered what your role in life is, it's it. Live to please God. Find out who he is, how much he loves you. Ask him about his plan for your life. It's unique. It's separate from everybody else's. But sometimes we have not because we ask not. If you're in the place where you go, I have no idea what, what I'm going to do with my life. I, have, I just have no idea what I'm going to do after I graduate from high school or college. What do I do with this fine arts degree and $70,000 of school loan debt? What do I do with all of that? Ask God. He's got a reason, a plan, and a purpose for your life. So Paul's rebuttal is not to pull apart the flaws of their religious argument, his, what he does is simply elevate and exalt Jesus Christ. In fact, there is no passage in the New Testament that sets forth more the eternal glory of the preexistent, omnipotent, exalted, eternal Son of God than these verses here in chapter 1. It is a remarkable passage. It is the foundation of our faith. If somebody were to ask you, who is Jesus this is a great chapter to turn them to. Sit them down in Starbucks, start in verse 1 of chapter 1, and just finish off the chapter. And by the end of the chapter, they should, they should know exactly who Jesus is. And then simply a follow-up question is necessary. Would you like to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? This is who he is, which sets him apart from every other religious order. Buddha didn't claim to be the Son of God. The Hindu deities didn't rise from the dead. They were not the sons of God. They don't do miracles. Can I tell you the Bible from Genesis to maps in the back, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So when you share your faith with, with people, when they ask you, well, do, do you go to church? You go, yeah, I go to church. And they ask you why. You tell them it's all about Jesus. Jesus began the church, so when we go to church, we study about Jesus, what he did, what he said, what he requires of us, what he's done for us. The church was born at Pentecost, and I love it, and I'd just like to share this with you. Keep, you keep your finger here, but feel free to flip with me over to Acts chapter 2, where we see the birth of the Holy 
Spirit baptizing the church. The church is actually born on, on Pentecost. It says in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, When the day of Pentecost came along, they were all together, the disciples, in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. Typical in Colorado, not so typical in Jerusalem. And yet there's this mighty tornadic wind. And the sound of that wind, it says, filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. John the Baptist had said, he baptized with water. He says, but one's coming after me that's going to baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. If there is a need to kindle a fire in your heart this morning, you are in the right place. You're here to meet the right God. We're in the right portion of Scripture. And all of them, it says, were filled, in verse 4, with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit enabled them. Did they always speak in tongues when the Holy Spirit came upon them? No. But as people gathered from all over the Roman world for this required Jewish festival, they would have dialects and languages from all over the place. And each one of them gets to hear the gospel in their own native tongue and dialect. So that miracle was necessary, and it was glorious. And then when people say, well, what's going on? What's the rush and the hubbub and the sound and all the rest of that about? It says in verse 14, Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, addressed the crowd, fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I have to say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. This is in fulfillment of Scripture. The prophet Joel had predicted in the last days, God would pour out His Holy Spirit upon all people. Can I stop there for just a second? Have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? If you're a born-again child of God, he lives within your heart. He is within you. But has he come upon you in power? Has he baptized you with the spiritual gifts? Has he filled you with the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and the rest of that? I know that if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you're saved. You've got the Holy Spirit. That's not what I'm talking about. There is a subsequent experience available to you that most Christians forfeit. They know they're saved. They know they got the Holy Spirit in here. They know that when they die, they're going to heaven to be with Jesus forever. They know that, but they don't have any spiritual power. There is little love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, and they think that's okay. I don't question their salvation. That's not what I'm doing. I'm saying, where's the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Where's the supernatural aspect to their lives? They may have religion. Do they have a real and vital relationship because they have asked the Holy Spirit to come upon them? That's not something you should be afraid of. Well, Pastor Jim, I've seen Pentecostal excess. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Any legitimate gift will always be counterfeited by the enemy of our souls, Satan. So where God raises up a good spiritual gift, he will raise up a false one. Where there is a true prophet of God, Satan will raise up a false prophet of God. Where there's a true teacher of God's word, there'll be many counterfeits that water down the word of God. But don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Jesus said, as he prepared to leave his disciples, he said, apart from you... Excuse me, apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, but I won't leave you alone. I won't leave you as orphans in the world. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. So you need to be praying. When I ascend, I just send the Holy Spirit. Well, that's what happened to Pentecost. Have you had a personal Pentecost? I'm not asking you to become Pentecostal. You may or may not speak in tongues, but have you asked the Holy Spirit of God, to baptize you because sometimes you just need more than you got. Many, many years ago, I was on the Colorado Springs Fire Department and they teach professional firefighters quickly what size hose to grab uh, depending on what size fire you've encountered. 
we carried 500 gallons of water on each of the pumpers, and sometimes you could come to a scene of a fire, and it was a small grass fire or something, dumpster fire. They've got a three-quarter inch booster hose that puts out 250 pounds per square inch of pressure. So you blow the fire out as much as you put it out with water. But we could use that small booster hose, and it, it was an appropriate hose and nozzle arrangement to use on smaller fires. But then there were some times where you actually had to strip the inch-and-a-half banks off the back of there. Each side of the truck had 250 feet inch-and-a-half hose, and you could put out 125 gallons per minute with each one of those hoses and knock down about 90% of all house fires. But sometimes we needed more. On rare occasions, we'd have to pull up to a fire hydrant, tap into that big four-and-a-half-inch soft suction hookup, run that water out of the hydrant into the pump of the truck and then filter it out through a variety of outlets in two-and-a-half-inch hoses, which is enough to lift any three of you in this room right off the ground under full pressure. It's a powerful hose. But sometimes we needed more. Anybody been in, uh, in Colorado Springs long enough to remember Chrissy Fowler Lumberyard downtown? Yeah, when they burned it to the ground, I was the guy on the end of the aerial ladder. I was the guy that felt like a marshmallow being hung over a campfire. My coat was smoking, my helmet was melting, and I'm at the end of a cannon that puts out 1,000 gallons per minute. I'm 150 feet in the air, and I'm watching this stream come out of this huge hose. Go, and the water disappeared before it ever got to the fire. That's how hot it was. So I thought to myself, well, not only am I going to come out of this thing looking like a s'more, melted marshmallow on the end of this long stick called the aerial ladder, it's that we've lost this place. We couldn't put enough water on it. The Holy Spirit is very similar. I know you have the Holy Spirit in you. That's not an issue. I'm not questioning your salvation. And if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you shouldn't either. But have you ever found yourself in life situations where you say, I could use a little more love, a little more joy, a little more peace, a little more patience? Have you ever found yourself in a position where you've got to say something, but you don't know what to say, and you would really like Christ to say something intelligent through you? Ask. Seek and knock is what Scripture says. Jesus himself said, if you need more, ask for more. Don't just settle for what you got. What you got is fine. You're going to heaven. You're a Christ. If you're a Christian, you've got the Holy Spirit inside of you. But Jesus told his disciples, while he will be inside of you, he's going to come upon you in power. And that's what happened at Pentecost. They needed more because none of them knew the languages of the Roman Empire. They needed something supernatural, and God was going to do that, and that's what happened at Pentecost. God met the need of all of those millions of people that would have been there for that Jewish observance, but the disciples were, they were meeting together in prayer. They were looking forward to the moving of God's Holy Spirit. I don't want you to go through life powerless. I don't want you to show up at a Christy Fowler size lumberyard fire in your own life without sufficient resources to meet the need. I don't want you to try to face your addictions by yourself or to try to minister to a demon-possessed person that may, may be a co-worker of yours in the power that you presently have. Sometimes you need more. Ask for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid of it. When you have brought to your, you've been brought to your knees by your circumstances, when you're in a situation you have no idea how you're going to get out of, when you face such catastrophe in your family, such horrendous loss, and you don't know how to respond, is when you need more. Ask for more. Ask for more. My grandchildren are smart enough to do that. They came over to the house yesterday, and the first thing they ask for, they don't ask for me. They ask for grandma, and they ask if she's made any cookies. 
It's always chocolate chip cookies. They know that grandma can be counted on for chocolate chip cookies. So they came in the door, and because we hadn't had dinner yet, I said, okay, boys, you can have one cookie. Now I'm really hard-lined with my grandkids, so after they finished the first cookie, they came and said, Grandpa, can I have another? I asked them, I said, do you need more? Yes. Yes. Then I said, then you, if you need more and you ask, you can have some more. Then I whispered in there, in fact, if you keep asking, you can have as many as you want. <laughs> Just don't tell Grandma. It's not a bad thing. Thank you, Tracy. It is not a bad thing to ask for more when you need more. You will run into things in life that you are not able to handle in the power of your flesh. Even as a Christian, there are going to be times in your life, if you haven't experienced them yet, you will. You say, man, I need more resources. I need more of God. I, I'm really struggling. Baptize me, Holy Spirit of my Father. Fill me with supernatural gifts, wisdom, skills, words to share that will impact other people. I need more. I need more. And i got to tell you, it's going to put a smile on the face of your father to hear those words. Don't settle for less. There are powerless Christians out there by the droves. There are tons of Christians that say, hey, I'm good. I'm going to heaven. I don't need more. You don't need more love, more joy, more peace, more patience. Maybe you should ask someone else if you need more of that stuff. Maybe they could be a bit more objective than yourself. We live in a Laodicean, lukewarm church age where people too often settle for too little. Don't be one of them. God has so much for you and I. So much. Peter's first sermon as he addresses these people under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, he finds himself in this situation where he and God prompts him to remember Joel chapter 2 about God pouring his spirit out in the last days. And then wraps it up in Acts chapter 2 and verse 21. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the Lord Jesus. It isn't Buddha. It's not Muhammad. It's not Confucius. It's not the Hindu deities. Although many people turn to those things to save, understand this. They are lifeless statues. They're made of wood or metal or stone. They've been carved by the hands of men. They have feet but can't walk, ears but they can't hear. They've carved eyes in them but they can't see. And people bow before such idols right up to the present day and have for 4,000 years. Your God is a living God. His Word living and breathing and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. All of those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. In other words, there is no other way to be saved. You say, well, I think I can get into heaven by being good enough. Let's think that through a second. God's standard is perfection. Are you good enough now? In fact, if there was any other way for you to get to heaven besides Jesus going to the cross, if there was any other way, then he wouldn't have gone to the cross. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup of suffering, the cross, take it from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. When we do not accept the Lord Jesus Christ, it is trampling underfoot his precious blood. And we cannot do that with impunity. There is an eternal price to be paid for that called eternal damnation. You didn't want God a part of your life, then he will put you in a place where you will never have to worry about God bugging you again. But it's a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place that is dark and, in, and insufferably hot, and God doesn't want anybody to go there. That's why Jesus paid the price for your sins and mine. But if you haven't bowed the knee, if he hasn't put his Holy Spirit inside of you, then we're still lost in our sins. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter's sermon continued. He's quite a sermonizer, but you could read his entire sermon in just three minutes. And 3,000 people got saved. 
3,000 people got saved. When he had shared with them that Jesus had died for their sins, it broke them. God spoke to their hearts. It says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of this fact. The disciples saw Jesus after he had died and been placed in the tomb in his post-resurrection appearances. He revealed himself to over 500 people before his ascension back into heaven. He's now exalted at the right hand of God. He's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Man, that's in your face. He's telling these Jews, you crucified the Son of God. But God raised him from the dead. That's a matter of historical fact. It really doesn't have anything to do with faith or your belief. It is historical fact. God raised Jesus from the dead. The Roman custodians, the the squad of soldiers around the tomb, bore witness to that. The disciples bore witness to that. 500 eyewitnesses bore witness to that fact. But is it really the Jews that crucified Christ? It was the Romans that took the nails and practiced crucifixion and then ran the spear into his side to assure his post-mortem condition. But for whose sins did he die? I crucified Christ. You crucified Christ. And to reject his blood shed so that your sins might be removed tramples underfoot that precious blood. When Peter confronted the crowd at Pentecost with these facts, it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? What do we do? We're convicted of the fact that we just crucified the Son of God. We anticipated the coming of our Messiah for 2,000 years, and when He came, we killed Him. Give us Barabbas. Crucify Him. Crucify Him. And Peter replied in verse 38 of Acts chapter 2, this is simple, repent. There should be sorrow for your sins. There should be contrition. There should be humility. There should be confession. Father God, I have sinned against you time without number. I've trampled underfoot the blood of your son Jesus by rejecting him most of my life. Forgive me, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. Jesus, be my Lord and Savior. Would you give me a personal Pentecost? Would you, would you save me? from my sins, and live with me forever. It is so simple to be saved. What are you hanging on to that's better than eternal life? What are you hanging on to that's better than being filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? You got something better? You got something better than an eternal hope that inspires us every moment of every day? He loves you so much. All he's looking for is you to reach the same point this Pentecost crowd did in the year 30 A.D. Oh, man, I'm cut to the quick. What do I do? Repent of your sins. Confess them to God. Renounce them. Ask him to save you, and he will. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And that's exactly what Peter replied. Repent. Be baptized, identifying yourself with the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He will come inside of you and give hope, meaning, and purpose, and direction to your life forever. 3,000 people got saved, and in this same chapter, it tells us what this early church devoted themselves to. 
This is what made the early church strong. It's what makes Christians strong today. Acts 2.42, these new believers, they devoted themselves, strong word, they devoted themselves to four simple things. And I'm, I want to ask you, do you devote yourself to these same four things as a child of God? They devoted themselves, first of all, to the apostles' teaching. Well, lucky you, you hold that in the, in the lap of uh, the Bible that you have in your hands is the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the Word of God. And to the fellowship, the fellowship means they go to church regularly. In fact, they were doing it seven days a week and nobody burned out. That's pretty radical, would you agree? The, the fellowship of believers, not just any fellowship. Thirdly, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. It's communion. So we never forget Jesus and what he accomplished for us. The bread represents his body given for us. The cup represents his blood. For without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins, Hebrews tells us. They fourthly devoted themselves to prayer. How devoted to these same four principles are you? Do you practice these same four principles with the regularity that made the early church strong? How strong do you feel as a Christian this morning? Have you been in his word? Have you devoted yourself? to these things, to the fellowship, hanging out with brothers and sisters in Christ and prayer and the fellowship, the breaking of bread. These are glorious things. The apostles' teaching, we should be in the Word of God every day. How did God respond? Verse 43, everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles, and all the believers were together. That's unity. And they had everything in common, translating the Greek word koinonia. They had everything in common. You have a need? Well, let's have lunch together. I'll buy you lunch. You know, you have one need or another. We get together and we met, met that common need. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day, this blows me away, verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They didn't have a church building, so they met where they could. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. That's the birth of the home churches. It was close. It was small. It was intimate. Praising God. We've come to admire mega churches today, but understand there were no mega churches in the first century. There weren't any. We see them today as modern-day marvels of success, but only in the world's eyes. These guys started out. I mean, Jesus, after three and a half years, he had a church of what, 11, 12 guys? And one of them was a betrayer, so we can boot Judas Iscariot. He's got 11 guys after pastoring the church for, what, three and a half years? Really? We'd call him a failure today. He was the son of God, a perfect teacher. And yet we esteem larger churches today more than smaller churches because we think that there is some significance in their success that might be spiritual, and it may or may not be. But understand, the early church was based upon intimacy and fellowship. Intimacy and fellowship. Intimacy and fellowship with God, making intimacy and fellowship with you and me possible. That's the backbone of the early church. And they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What an introduction to this chapter here that we are back in, in Colossians here starting in verse 21, because what Paul reminds the church is pre-Pentecost. Do you remember what you were like before you were saved? Verse 21 of Colossians 1, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. That was our former identity, every one of us. Alienated from God because we were self-willed, refusing to bow the knee. So we were alienated from God by our evil behavior. Now, if your behavior is still evil, then you're still alienated from God. Think that through. 
I don't want to be alienated from him at all. This is who I was. But verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. Have you ever looked in the mirror and said, holy? None of us do that because we know we're not. You're absolutely right. You've been declared holy by God because of what Jesus did for you. You are holy. So you can look in the mirror and honestly say that. Thank you, Lord, for making me holy. I know I'm still a sinful man, got a long, long ways to go. Don't miss the point. I've been declared holy. That's what's getting me into heaven. I'm perfect. I meet his perfect standard because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He perfectly kept the law. He died once for all sin. I'm saved. He has made me holy. So you want to circle that word holy. It means separated from the things of the world, are you? Or does the world still have a hook into your heart? We live in a day and a day and age that's dominated by technology, by entertainment, by self-indulgence. We're dominated by that world all around us. And while we can put endless amounts of time in those things, uh, they may not make us more holy in the practice of our faith. People are committing suicide over how many likes and dislikes they get on social media. And we think that's okay somehow or another. Social media dominates the landscape today. But it, we forget that we are called to be wholly separated from the things of the world. I'm not saying a cell phone's a sin. It may be. I don't know. How much time do you spend on the cell phone versus how much time do you spend in the Bible? Maybe your cell phone's your God. Maybe it's not. I'm just throwing that out as a, as a test. Well, you don't expect me to live without my cell phone. What do you think they did before cell phones came out? Life was not possible on planet Earth. Really? Through Christ's physical body, through death, to present us holy in His sight. We may not be holy in each other's, but we are His. That blesses me. God, can I tell you something? We have all come from dysfunctional pasts. Can you agree with that? We only vary in kind and degree of dysfunctionality. But all of us have a common need that can only be met with Christ. Before we became Christians, we tried meeting that inner need, that emptiness, that void. We tried meeting that need with relationships or drugs or alcohol or success or money or possessions, a thousand other things. We all had an emptiness that we found out nothing could fill until we came to Christ. And we found, I didn't even know I had a void, but now I feel like I'm full. I didn't know there was an emptiness, but I was looking for my whole life for something to fill that ache in my heart that only God could fill. you got a God-shaped void in you at the moment of creation. You've been made in the image of God. There is a place inside of every human being that aches to know the reality. Is there a God? Does He love me? Is there a plan for my life? Or am I just some cosmic accident that showed up here because of the whim of two sinful parents? Christ died to give our lives meaning and purpose and direction, to give his church hope, to make us holy. And while he leaves us here, it is so that we can be his ambassadors until he returns. And he is coming soon. If you didn't get the memo, the geopolitical situation around the world today tells us how potentially imminent his appearing can be. Peter talks about scoffers in the last days. Oh, where's the coming that he's been talking about? Things have been going on this way for 2,000 years, but they deliberately forget that long ago God judged the world through Noah's flood. He'll judge this world again by fire this time. Jesus chided the religious leaders of his day and age, and he says, you, you look in the sky and you look at the color of the clouds and the color of the sunset and you predict the, the weather, but you, you don't have enough common sense to predict the signs of the times. 
You don't see the lateness of the day and age that we live in. You don't see that drought is universally expressed in Scripture as a judgment of God and a harbinger of worse things to come. But when have you heard that in a Colorado pulpit? That our drought may be God trying to get Colorado's attention. Has anybody ever thought about that? Show me a place in Scripture where drought is not a direct punishment of God. I can't find one. I've looked. I was looking all the way up to yesterday. I can't find it. He's time and time again trying to get mankind's attention and to turn off that voice, that nagging religious voice that's trying to draw us to himself. We turn on the television. We turn on our social media. We jump on our computers and we try to get lost in a wide variety of extraneous activities that have no eternal consequence whatsoever. Trying to drown out that voice of conscience and reason, the voice of God that says to your heart, you know something's wrong in America. You know there's something wrong with the sin, the corruption, the violence that is pandemic in America today and for, throughout the Western world for that matter. Verse 22 of Colossians 1 reminds me often of what God has, has done for me. I used to be alienated from God because of my sins, but verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. you got to love verse 22, but the sentence in the original language doesn't stop there. I have come to the personal belief that the biggest word in the entire Bible is the word if. Two letters that just clean my clock every time I run around them because verse 22 runs right into verse 23. If you're, you're, you're going to be holy, okay, without spot, without blemish, free from accusation. If, say if. That's a first-class conditional statement. If you forgot sixth-grade English, I'm here to remind you. It's a first-class conditional statement that says the first part happens only if you do the second part. So, yes, you will be presented holy in his sight without blemish and free from his accusation if and only if you continuously continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. The first part in verse 22 reminds me of what God has done for me. Verse 23 reminds me that in this relationship, I have some responsibilities. But you already knew that about relationships, didn't you? You can't get married without communication and intimacy and exchange. There has to be a continuation of those, those, that input in your relationship. I mean, imagine what your life would be like in your marriage, those of you that are married, if you never talked, you never went anywhere, never went out to dinner, never had anything in common, never spoke a word to each other, but assumed. We still love each other. Hey, I said I love you. When we walk the aisle, if things change, I'll let you know. <laughs> Men are such dirt clods. I can't hear enough how much God loves me, and your wife can't hear enough how much you love her. Uh, yeah, guys need that. I don't know. Maybe you, you macho guys, you're grew up with a Clint Eastwood model and have a 44 Magnum with a 10-inch barrel in the back of your pocket. Great, God bless you. There's a reason that's called a movie. It's detached from reality, okay? But I grew up with uh, people like John Wayne and Clint Eastwood as heroes, and I kind of thought that explained my dad's behavior, who was a rather unloving, ungracious, unkind man that kind of ruled the roost. So when people would say, well, who's your dad? I'd say, hey, it's Clint Eastwood. Got a 44 Magnum, can blow your head clean off. Your wife does not want Clint Eastwood for a husband or John Wayne. They married you. For some strange reason, I can't understand. <laughs> We're to love each other. 
We're to support each other. We're to submit to each other. Can I tell you what? As a freebie Mother's Day gift, your marriage will prosper to the extent that your personal walk with the Lord Jesus Christ prospers. Ladies and husbands both, you ignore God's Word, your marriage will suffer. You ignore prayer and fellowship and all of the four things that made the early church strong. You ignore any one of those four, your marriage will suffer. Well, people say, well, I'm really a prayer warrior. I, I pray fine. You know, I may not read the Word of God every day, but and I don't even have a good one up here to show you. I do. Let me show you this. Of the four pillars that made the early church strong, think of it as a four-legged stool. How many of those legs do I have to cut out from underneath you before you fall over on the stool? Does it matter which one? So you say, well, I pray, but I don't read. <laughs> Satan's out there with a hacksaw, and you're going to fall. Or you say, well, I read and I, and I pray, but I don't go to church much. <laughs> Satan is out there setting you up for a fall. Well, I believe in all of those things. I, the, the fellowship end of it. <laughs> Satan doesn't care which of these four pillars that he carves out from underneath you, you ignore any of those things that we read in Acts 2.42 through 48, you will fall. Your marriage will suffer. But if you've been married any length of time, you already knew that. You get out of it what you put into it. True of your walk with the Lord, true of your marriage, true of any relationship. Well, that's what verses 1 or excuse me, 22 and 23 here in Colossians 1, remind us of God has done His part. I'm reconciled Him. I'm perfect. I'm holy in His sight without a spot or blemish. If, if I keep doing these things, if I continuously continue doing these things, it shows that there is a tenacity to my faith. It shows the reality of my faith. It shows a consistency to the world in how I handle myself. First class conditional statement. It's a scary responsibility. You say, well, I thought I just got saved and I didn't have to do nothing. Hmm. Who told you that? You don't walk the aisle and walk into a marriage and then do nothing for the next 30 years, not unless you want to be divorced in six months. There is a constant input of information and an exchange of ideas and loving and caring and sharing that makes a marriage a marriage. You ignore any of those things, your marriage will suffer accordingly. So verse 23, I take that responsibility seriously. And John, John excuse me, Paul could not have worded this more emphatically. In fact, when he says, if you continuously continue in your faith... He puts a preposition in front of that meant to intensify it. You've got to do these things. We can't be lazy or lukewarm, unspiritually filled Christians and hope to accomplish anything in our lives or in this world these last days. We need more. That's what this is all about. We need more. More of the Holy Spirit. More of His Word. More prayer. More fellowship. More of God in my life. Didn't, aren't we told in Genesis that in the beginning God created man in his own image? Part of that image is he put a place inside of us that makes us hungry for God. You've felt that from time to time, and I encourage you to feed that. Feed that where God is drawing you to himself. Don't quench that still small voice. He loves you so much. He wants what's best for you. He wants you happy. Why do you fight him on it? I mean, does that seem reasonable to you? If, if God wants to bless your socks off, why in the world would you stop him? If he wants to give you so much, you say, oh, no, don't need it. I'm good with three-week-old gruel that I have to scrape the green mold off of in the fridge. I'm good with that. Really? Why do we, when he offers so much, why do we settle for so little? This is the gospel, Paul continues, that you heard and has been proclaimed every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become its servants. And he's going to outline it very briefly. 
is labor for the church, starting in verse 24. Now, I rejoice in what was suffered for you. He'd been in and out of jail most of his ministry, run out of town the times he, that he wasn't in, in jail. He was rejected far more than he was ever received. I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Now, what he means by that is I haven't come anywhere near the point of suffering like Jesus did. So he's filling up things in my life that make me more like him. He suffered a lot. Suffering kills off more of me and allows more of him to shine through. So Paul says, I don't mind suffering, but that's an ongoing process. I'm still filling it up by the things that I suffer. It's not that he is vicariously suffering for anybody's sins, and that's not the case. What he's saying is his suffering serves God's purposes in his life. For the sake of his body, which is the church, I have become its servant, the church's servant, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Now, that's my job as a pastor. So I just go chapter by chapter and verse by verse through any given book of the Bible because it's all the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. All Scripture is God-breathed, it says, and is suitable for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness. Well, sometimes you need to be corrected. Sometimes you need to be reproved. Sometimes you need to be admonished. Well, the Word of God does all of those things, so I don't dodge any of those bullets. I know you sometimes are wondering, did my wife call you? Did she rat me out? Did she tell you what a bad boy I've been or bad husband or... No, 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 none of that. But if God steps on your toes, understand it's not Pastor Jim. I have nothing to do with that. I didn't write the book. So if the book steps on your toes, maybe God's trying to get your attention. Maybe, just maybe, you could change a little bit. Maybe, just maybe, you could ask God for a little bit more of His Holy Spirit. Just maybe instead of folding your arms and glaring at the pastor, who's not moved by those things anyway, would it be perhaps more profitable to open those arms up and say, Lord, have your way with me? What do you got to lose? He loves you. That's so much for you. That's so much for each one of us. He describes this glorious relationship he describes the church, quite frankly, in, in verse 26 of Colossians 1, as a mystery. Now, there he's kind of robbing the mystery pagan religion uh, vocabulary from the Gnostics of his day and age. Uh, this mystery kind of thing that only the novitiates to the cults would understand. Uh, he says, well, let me give you a real mystery. The church wasn't clearly visible in the Old Testament. Well, we understand it's in fulfillment of God's purposes to serve not only Jews but Gentiles as well. But that was a mystery back then. And Paul says, it's my job to declare to you the mystery. You're the church. This is the building. You are the church. You're the important part. Where we meet, how we meet, what we sit on, that, that is of virtually no relevance at all. Although our flesh likes to have air conditioning on hot days, I get that. A little warmth from the heaters on a cold day. Yep, yep, yep. We try to provide all of that for you guys. That, that's our ministry to you. And other churches feel the, the same way. But the essence of the church isn't the building. It's you. You are more important to God than any amount of architectural magnificence. Some churches, oh, I have multi-million dollar buildings, oh, zillions of dollars in gold-plated faucets, and that, that, that's all great and wonderful, but that's the building. You're the church. My job is to adorn you with the righteousness of Christ. My job is to make you hungry enough that you ask for more of His Holy Spirit to change you, make you better than you are, give you the resources to meet the need when the trials of life inevitably come along. The mystery, verse 26, that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to us, the saints, literally the holy ones, we who have been made holy. Verse 27, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is, get this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
That's God's down payment that you're going to heaven. His Holy Spirit inside of you is a, a down payment, if you will. If you've ever worked with a pawn shop, sometimes you go in and you run short of money, have to pawn something, they give you a little receipt. And then you go back at some point in time, you give them the receipt, and, and, you, and you get your item pawned back when you pay for it. Well, that's kind of what Jesus has done for us. All of us were slaves to sin, and Jesus purchased us with his own blood. He hasn't come back yet to pick up the merchandise, but he's coming soon. He's coming soon. I've been, I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. Scripture tells us the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be ready for his imminent return. Could it be soon, Pastor Jim? Do you realize the Bible prophesies about the rise of Russia in the last days and red China? When do you think it'd be a really good time to get right with the Lord? When they start throwing nukes at each other? You realize that for the first time in the last 70 years, a Russian power has threatened us with nuclear devastation? We shouldn't think lightly about that. I'm not sure that Mr. Putin has all of his oars in the water. I think he's a few fries short of a happy meal, as my grandkids would say. But uh, suppose he starts throwing nuclear devices around. I mean, what are you going to do if they aim one for NORAD or Shriver or Pete Field or Fort Carson or the Air Force Academy? You think then's a good time to get serious about our walk with the Lord Jesus? Too late then. When's a good time to get ready? Right now. Right now. Open your heart up. Let him remind you how much he loves you. Repent of your sins. Ask him to forgive you your sins. Be your Lord and Savior. Turn over your life to him. Submit. Receive this gracious offer of eternal life because he loves us so much. He is our hope of glory. Feel free to highlight verse 27. That, that verse is a rock and roller to me. It is amazing. It was kind of a mystery in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit someday would personally indwell each of God's people. That's a, that's a radical thing. In the Old Testament, you saw the Holy Spirit once in a while. He'd come upon a prophet. He'd come upon a king. It just kind of seemed like an episodic kind of thing. But now the Holy Spirit indwells everyone who has received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And when, what he brings to the table is spiritual gifts and spiritual fruit. The gifts are a supernatural uh, gifting, if you will, to equip you for the life ministry that he's got for you. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and good. You know that list out of Galatians 5 that's available for every single Christian. You ever felt like, I need more love? I need more power? I need more peace? Ask. And it's yours. Submit. Surrender. Seek his face. As he wraps up this chapter, Paul in Galatians 1.28 says, We proclaim him, Jesus. Can I tell you, as a pastor, that's all I got. I'm like a guy who plays a one-string banjo. All I got is Jesus. I got nothing else to offer you. I don't have anything else. It is him, him crucified, him risen from the dead. Jesus is all I got. And that's all we have ultimately to offer to the world. We can talk to them about religion. We can invite them to this activity or that activity. But what they really need is Jesus. And it's the one thing we got, the one thing they need, the only thing the church has to offer. We proclaim him. I don't preach a social gospel. I preach the Word of God to the people of God by the power of God's Holy Spirit. That's the way it's supposed to work. This is all supposed to be a supernatural thing where it's all about Him. It's His Word, His Son, His Holy Spirit. And I come into oneness in a mysterious fashion. I don't fully understand, but I'm going to heaven with Him. I'm going to be there forever with him. Gives my life meaning and purpose and direction here today as well as in the future. My job, proclaim him, admonish him, teach everyone with wisdom. And as Paul says here, so that we may present everyone 
perfect in Christ. Perfect. Could be interpreted whole, complete, mature. That's my job, is to try to mature you, to encourage growth. But here's the deal. I only get you an hour a week. There's 168 hours in a week. So I got you less than one half of about three quarters of one percent of the time in this week. What are you doing with the rest of the time? You've got to be in the Word of God and feeding yourself and praying and seeking His face. So I can only do so much because I only got you for one hour. And you think, well, I could move in with you, Pastor Jim, at your house. You'd eat too much. Verse 29, to this end, Paul says, to mature the saints, to perfect the body of Christ, to this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Paul says, I learned a long time ago, I can do ministry, but I'll burn out or rust out if I don't do it by the power of his Holy Spirit. How many pastors do you know that have burned out or rusted out? I don't want to do either one. I want to understand where my energy comes from. It comes from the living God. His calling came from Him. His empowering comes from Him. His Word supernaturally feeds my soul, which is why I'm in the Word every day. That's why I encourage you to be in the Word, not for legalistic reasons. I'm not trying to make a Pharisee out of you. I'm trying to make a Christian out of you and a better one at that. We could all stand a little improvement in our lives, couldn't we? Some of you are more perfect than others of us, but there's room for improvement in every single one of us. And all I'm advocating this morning is think about this. Think about doing more of the things that made the early church strong. Remember who you used to be, but that is not who you are. You're a child of God. You've been declared holy. You've been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All of these wonderful things that assure our eternal destiny. But do you have what you need to meet the trials of life as they come along? I know that you have the Holy Spirit in you, but has He come upon you in power? Different Greek preposition. Do you need more? I mean, the most humiliating thing in the world would be to show up at a five-alarm blaze at a high-rise hotel and you've got nothing but a pump can full of five gallons of water? Not sufficient to meet the need. Spiritually, there are applications there as well. So things are coming in your life and mine. Things have happened in your past. They're going to happen in the future. And you're going to need more than what you got now. Seek. Ask and knock, Jesus said. It'll be given you. It'll be given you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit in that particular context. I want to be perfected in Christ. Oh, there, I have so far to go. So, 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 so far to go. But what I see in verse 29 is that God's sovereignty and my responsibility kind of go hand in hand. If I want to be more spiritual, am I doing the things that lead me in that direction? Am I reading more? Am I praying more? Am I fellowshipping more? Am I enjoying the Lord's Supper on a regular basis? Communion? Remembering what He did for me and what's going on in the present time? That's the mystery, the miracle, really, of a successful Christian walk with God. It's, it's me and God yoked together. Didn't Jesus give us an analogy like that one time? Didn't He one time say, take my yoke upon you and learn of me? A yoke is where two animals fit beneath a bent piece of wood. The stronger animal, by design of the yoke, pulls the greater part of the burden. And what Jesus says is, Wouldn't, won't you yoke yourself together with me? I'll pull the major part of the burden in life, but you've got to pull your share too. But yoke yourself together with me. And we'll get through life just fine together. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, Jesus said. For I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. I love how that feels. Walking in his peace. What would you have us do? The Pentecost crowd asked Peter. That's simple. If you don't know Jesus, repent. What does repent mean? Oh, you know what it means. 
It means to be sorrowful for your sins. It means to be remorseful. It means you change your direction. It means you're going that way pursuing sin. You do a U-turn, you start pursuing God. We know what the word repentance means. That's what he told Pentecost crowds. In fact, when Peter and and uh, John were standing in front of the Sanhedrin, the same Sanhedrin that crucified Christ. They were brought up on charges for simply healing a crippled beggar. He said the same thing there. What did they need to do? Even the religious leaders, they needed to repent. Understand this, without repentance, there is no forgiveness of sins. You can't have your sins and Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life at the same time. Can't do that. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness of sins. I, I love Colossians because it reminds me as a pastor, it's all about Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Him. He's got a plan that it encompasses the entire universe. But I'm reminded of my responsibility in that scary passage that began with that big if in the middle of the page there in verse 20. 23, all of God's blessings are conditioned upon how we respond to God. Is there repentance? Is there contrition? Are we abiding in Him like, like Jesus said? Because you, you see that not all who seem eager to, to know the Lord and serve the Lord really know Him or serve Him with a degree of consistency that the Bible requires. Do you remember the parable of the sower. It's recorded for us in a couple of, of the gospel accounts. I, I just wanted to bring into your remembrance the one out of Matthew, uh, starting in, in verse 1 of Matthew 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house, sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat on it while all the people stood on the shore. Kind of a natural projection of his voice out over the still waters. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on the rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, but because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they were withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked out the plants. Still another seed, other seed, fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, and thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. You say, okay, I don't understand a single thing you just said. One farmer, all the seed is the same. The farmer is God. The seed is the Word of God. What I've just done this morning is thrown seed. God has called you and I to be the Johnny Apple seeds of our generation. You throw the seed. The seed is the, is the Word of God. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everywhere we go, we're salt and light. We're throwing seed. We're telling people about Jesus. We're inserting God in the conversation everywhere we possibly can. That's what kingdom living is all about. But he explains to us the parable in verse 18 of chapter 13 of the Gospel of Matthew. Listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away the seed that was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who receives the seed, the word of God, that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with great joy. But since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. There are Christians that you know that have fallen away. There are people you know that once were in church, loved Jesus, read their Bibles, and they're nowhere to be seen today. They've fallen by the wayside, and perhaps they are a part of this group here that Jesus is addressing. Third group in verse 22, the one who receives the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, the woman who hears the word, the child that hears the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, choke it out, making it unfruitful. The cares and concerns of this world, I care more about Facebook and Twitter and Instagram than I do the Word of God. 
I care more about the television shows that come on or the activities that I engage in or the hobbies or the addictions that I have. The issues of this world take a toll and sometimes make the seed that was sown in your heart and mine unfruitful. Verse 23, but the one who receives the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word, understands it. He produces a crop, that takes time, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Hmm. I love that. What's your response to the grace of God? Do one of these types of soil represent you? Has the Word of God been snatched out of your heart like birds snatch it off a footpath? Or has worries and cares and concerns and anxieties caused you to fall away from the Lord and, and you've not persevered to the fruit-bearing stage? Has the Word of God changed you? Has it turned your life around? Are you, are you seeking Him? In Jeremiah, it said, you'll seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Does that describe you this morning? I pray that it does. Does the spiritual fruit that you're bearing demonstrate the reality of your faith? <laughs> if so, praise the Lord. That's awesome. But if not, repent. Go back to where you once were with the Lord. Ask Him to be the Lord of your life again. Repent of your sins and commit yourself to Him, to follow after Him, to seek Him with all of your heart, to devote yourself to the four things that made the early church strong in Acts chapter 2, where you were reading and praying and fellowshipping, communing with His people. Make God the priority of your life again. That's my encouragement this morning. If you're settling for too little and late and say, rob you of too much, stop it. Isn't that rocket science? <laughs> if you're tired of Satan kicking in your teeth, start kicking back. You don't have to lay down and play dead. That, that's fine if you're a possum. I don't think we have any possums here in the service this morning. Then don't take a beating. Don't fake it. But you, God wants to bless you silly, but you've got to do this thing God's way if you've been doing it your way. Yeah, how's that been working out for you? Really. Self-willed people find themselves shorted in this life as well as the life to come. Short-sighted people believe this life is all that there is. Can I tell you, everything is better with Christ. Everything is better. Are your sins under control? Is your family life in order? Do your kids brag about what a spiritual mom and dad they have? Are the mothers bragging on their children today what a marvelous walk they have with the Lord Jesus Christ? What kind of legacy are we leaving behind? Do your children love the Lord? Are you sharing your faith? Or are you hiding in the shadows of guilt and shame and despair, hauling out excuses of one kind or another to excuse why we don't share our faith? Well, I'm really kind of shy not outspoken. Can I tell you? Come out. Come out from where you're at. Seek the Lord. Let Him bless you. Let Him love you. I want you to stand together with me as the praise band comes up.